Welcome to this episode of the Atlanta Career Journey Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Varnado, and my guest today is Steve Woodcock, who is a principal partner at Soft One. Steve and I worked together at Sprint over 20 years ago. He was fresh out of the military, but made a big impression on the team with his calm demeanor, his leadership, and a can-do attitude. He took his experiences as a supply chain officer and expanded that approach into the telecom pricing industry. And he's also a diehard Philly sports fan, which is there any other one? So I enjoyed catching up with him in person versus a Zoom call on this episode. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here he is. Again, thanks for being on the podcast. This is um, this is really, I think, useful for a lot of the younger listeners um, just to kind of hear about experiences. You've got a really good one. Um, you know, we met at Sprint. You would just come out of the military. Um, so I'm curious to hear more about that. But let's just kind of start with... You know, lifelong Eagles fan. Obviously, you grew up in Philly, but tell me a little bit about your uh, That's right. your growing up and into high school. Tough time right now as an Eagles fan, but uh, and back then, growing up, it was too, of course. But um, yeah, I uh, lived in Philadelphia until 1989. It was uh, great growing up there. Great sports town, lots of fun. Um, I went off to college in 1982. I uh, went to a small liberal arts college in upstate New York called Hobart College. Yeah. So in high school, tell me about what you studied. What were you interested in? How did that get you to the college you started at? Uh, you know, it was just the, the basic core curriculum for uh, uh, high school students. I guess what my what I was drawn to back then was uh, were the history classes, though. We had some really great history teachers. I would say history and English. I, our, our English teachers definitely sparked my interest in literature as well. So you had some good teachers that inspired you and made a, a difference in terms yeah, of you. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, I found myself later on in life going back to reading some of the books that I really didn't enjoy reading when I had to read them in, in high school and came back to appreciate that more later on. And uh, I've become a uh, an amateur uh, history buff um, now, and and I think that has a lot to do with the quality of the uh, teaching I had back in high school. Nice. So, looking at colleges, you were looking locally. Were you thinking about going away, or what did that look like? Sometimes finances will make that decision for you. Yeah. Um, so I was looking to get away a little bit. I wanted to go out and strike out on my own, um, get away from the, the sphere of influence around the, the Philadelphia area and, um, and, and venture out a bit. So uh, really, you know, back then I wasn't sure exactly what kind of school I wanted to go to, large or small, a business school, or, uh, and you know, I just did what my, my parents uh, suggested, which was go study liberal arts and uh, my parents, my college counselor said, you know, you should go to a, a smaller liberal arts college, um, something, you know, a thousand, couple thousand students I thought was a good fit for me. So I followed their advice and applied to about four or five. And, um, uh, you know, resultingly, I, I ended up at the school. I chose the school uh, that was the furthest from home uh, at the end of the day. They were all pretty equal from the academic standards and uh, admissions uh, competitiveness. So I just chose the one that was the furthest from home. So Hobart College, what did you major in when you first got accepted? I majored in economics and Spanish. Okay. Economics because um, my parents said, well, you need to major in something that's close to business. They don't have a business degree there. So we really think you ought to do that. My brother was an econ major at Wake Forest, so why not do what he was doing? Uh, but I also chose a second major, which was Spanish, because I just enjoyed it. I had a couple of good professors at Hobart. Um, I was a peer advisor um, working for um, one of my Spanish professors who was an advisor. You know, I was like the peer advisor. She was the advisor to mm -hmm. uh, underclassmen. So, did you take Spanish in high school? I did. Okay. And you know, I had uh, one really uh, demanding Spanish teacher in high school, but I came out of high school with a really, um, you know, being pretty proficient with speaking and reading Spanish. So, did you do any study abroad, or did you immerse yourself in any of Spanish speaking culture? Uh, I wish I had. I was doing the double major, and I got accepted into a, um, a semester abroad at Salamanca in Spain. And um, when, if I went there, though, I found out that I would not be able to take any econ classes. And I needed the econ classes to be able to graduate on time. I needed those credits, so I had to back out of it. So that 
would have been really good to kind of reinforce and, and nail down my fluency in Spanish had I taken that time. Gotcha. So Hobart, um, you graduate in four years. Um, what, I did. Yeah. What was your uh, What was your next step looking like? Were you interviewing? Did you have uh, some summer jobs that led to something, or what? What was What was your thought process? Yeah, summer jobs. Now, uh, back then there weren't that many people doing internships, so you know I was a guy cleaning pools, uh, labor at the golf course, whatever paid the most, paving right? roads. Yeah. So. Uh, um, it came time. It was it was getting near uh, uh, the middle of my senior year. Uh, there was one guy who came to me and said, "Hey, I'm a friend of the family. I'm a commander in the Navy, and um, you know, I'm, I'm talking to another buddy of yours that I'd grown up with, Scott, and uh, he's going to go into this officer candidate school program. I think you'd be a great guy to go do that." And I thought about that. That was one one option, but I thought, you know, I'm not a it seems like something you got to be 150% committed to. Seems cool. I watched a lot of Victory at Sea, you know, TV shows and war movies growing up. Mm-hmm. Sailed a lot with my dad, but wasn't totally committed like I thought I would need to be. Did you have a uh, family that were military My veterans? dad was an enlisted man in the military yeah. for a few years at the tail end of uh, the Korean War. Okay. Um, you know, we used to get out his old sea bag and try on his uniform and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, mean, I always thought it was great, but I, I really didn't feel like I had that commitment inside of me that I needed to have to do it. And again, I, I um, talked to my dad, talked to, you know, other family members, what should I do? And they said... Uh, well, you know, apply for bank training programs, become a commercial credit analyst. And I um, ended up applying to a company called Vanguard. It's a big mutual fund company. It was, uh, it was a big one then, but it's, uh, it's, it's grown yeah, it's, tenfold or so. since. Pretty know, much put huge. the mutual fund on the map, didn't yeah, they? Yeah. yeah, the infidelity. And um, it was a fantastic company to go work for. So I was an investor information rep. Um, people would call up and ask questions about the funds um you know what would try to match up people with funds that fit their investment objectives it was uh i learned a lot from it i enjoyed that i worked with great people it was a good transition coming out of college uh i was probably in a department of about 100 people who were between the ages of about 22 and 25 so that's a great mix where you all kind of bond you know you're still single you're young you can you can uh we actually had money in our pockets at this point, though, too, which was uh, a little a, bit of money, not a lot. But at as least Bruno Mars says, that's a dangerous thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was, I, you know, you come out of college, like, gosh, how could anything be any more fun than, than the last four years I just had? But um, it was great. It was people still, the, you know, like-minded, um, same age, same place in life, and, and we had fun. I, I only did that for about a year. I would say Vanguard um, is a great company. Uh, I learned a lot from it. They got me uh, the opportunity to pursue my Series 7 license while I was in there, which is the broker's license. Um, and I passed that. And somebody called me up from the Bank of Delaware, uh, where I had interviewed for a job coming out of college, and I didn't get it. And they had a position open. They'd kept me on file there and um, asked if I'd be interested in coming down and interviewing for a portfolio assistant job. Now, are these in the same town, Fidel, or um, Vanguard in Delaware? Vanguard was in Valley Forge at the time, and um, Bank of Delaware was in Wilmington. So Vanguard, five-minute drive to work for me, and uh, the Bank of Delaware was a 50-minute drive. So not yeah. quite the same town, but local. Yeah. yeah. So what did you, like the thought process of leaving your first job, was uh, pay more, was there more responsibility, was it something that was compelling for that particular bank? So it was, I felt at the time it was an opportunity of a lifetime because it was a little bit more money. Um, From a dollar basis, it was just a little bit more money. On a percentage basis, it was huge, but that's only because of how little I was making coming out of college. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but... uh, the um, I was a guy who was uh, answering phones and, and talking about mutual funds and what might be a good match to somebody's investment objectives, going to the Bank of Delaware and their investment uh, department and the trust department, 
I'd actually be helping to manage money, doing research on stocks, um, working on customer accounts, working with customers. Uh, I was going to really learn how money was managed, work for senior portfolio managers. Um, was I thought, wow, why wouldn't I want to? I was really excited about that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, uh, so you take that job and then how long were you at that job? I was there about two years. Um, and I learned a lot. I got promoted after a year from what came in as a portfolio assistant. So that was the guy helping out four portfolio managers, uh, manage all of their customer accounts between them. They had about and I, you know, I think it was around four or five hundred million under management at that point. So helping them do whether it was uh, customer relationship work, um, doing uh, asset allocation, but working side by side with them. A lot of grunt work for them, of course, uh, but learning a lot about how to manage accounts. And then I got to promoted to be a junior portfolio manager. Um, that was a big deal to me and I got, they handed me a, a small number of accounts uh, to manage directly on my own, manage the customer relationships, the investment decisions. And uh, I was, you know, I was kind of off and running at that point in my investment management career. Um, but then uh, I started to read Tom Clancy books, <laughs> Red Storm Rising, Hunt for Red October. And then I saw my buddy, Scott. Scott was the guy that decided to go off to the Navy. I'd see him every Christmas, he'd come home. And, and so I saw, saw Scott and um, over Christmas and he was telling me about all the cool things he was doing on his submarine. And I, uh, you know, that, that got me really thinking again about the Navy. Um, I thought, hey, I've, you know, do I really, what do I need, what do I want to be doing next? I was working hard, learning a lot. I'd play basketball, work out, go out with my friends on the weekends, sometimes the weeknights. It was all fun. We all did that. Yeah. But, you know, was that what I was going to do for the next, you know, so many years, eventually, uh, you know, maybe get married and start a family and all that? Um, I didn't want to go. I thought I needed to be doing something more. I wasn't sure what it was. I didn't want to go to grad school and get my MBA. I wasn't academically inclined. I like to, I like being challenged and, and, and learning on my own. But mm -hmm. that didn't feel right for me. Um, I wasn't ready to, to get married. And then um, I ran into Scott, and that got me th thinking more about the Navy. Um, and then uh, one more. Uh, piece got kind of tied up for me, uh, for me. Um, a girl I was dating said that she wasn't interested in continuing to date me. And so I was like kind of free and clear. And I called up uh, the Navy recruiter and uh, scheduled uh, some time to go down and take the test and then pass that. And it kind of started to go from there. You know, I went through the application process to go into an officer program. What year was this? That was... Uh, uh, about January of 1989. Okay. So uh, I was trying to think if there was any anything happening in the, the country or the world that helped to kind of inspire this this change as well. Really nothing was going on then. It was, um, it was kind of a, a time of peace. I remember, uh, you know, the, the Berlin Wall was still up though. So during one of my interviews, there was this lieutenant commander uh, looks at me and the first question he asks is, so why do you want to join the Navy? And I was trying to conjure up a, a good answer about serving my country and uh, you know doing the best that I can do for. And he said, no, don't answer that. I already know. You want to see the world and kill commies, don't you? And <laughs> that said, was the right answer at the time. Yes, sir. Yes. So uh, that mm -hmm. was uh, that that changed uh, by the time I got out of officer candidate school. The Berlin Wall had come down, and yeah, things had changed a little bit. Yeah. All right, so def definitely a pivot from financial services and good opportunities and going out during the weeknights with your buddies. Um, so what what goes what goes through uh, officer candidate um, transition? You it's it's how many weeks is that? Sixteen. Okay, and then from there you're afforded some options at the end of that to go, or you're sort of just pulled into wherever they need you. 
Uh, no, actually, when you apply um, to the officer uh, program, you need to select what kind of uh, area that you want to go into. Okay. And then that community decides essentially if um, they want you in their community There's a fit to go and, in. Yeah. yeah. So okay. it's, a, it's a lot like applying for a job in a specific department. All right. Yeah. So were you, um, so what did you wind up getting pulled into? So I, the, the commander who um, asked me to consider going into this, uh, Brian Chandler, um, he was in the logistics side of the Navy. So and the way he kind of sold it to me is, look, you're going to learn logistics. There's great business skills in that, but you still go out to ships, whatever, and you ship submarines, what have you, air squadrons, and you, you're going to be just like any other officer, but you're going to learn the business side and the logistics side of the Navy as well. And, um, and he was 100% right. So mm-hmm. I did the, I went through officer candidate school. I went to the logistics school that they used to have out in Athens, Georgia. And um, that was for six months. Great, great time to be a, a junior officer. Again, a little money in your pocket in a college town mm-hmm. going, to, going to school. That's interesting that they were in Athens. Uh, this, was a, this was strictly Navy? Yeah. And it was in Athens. It had a little Navy campus right there across from a bar called Allen's, which has since closed. But it was uh, you know, famous for the B-52s and some other bands that came out of Athens. Yeah. yeah. The 80s music scene in Athens was yeah. um, pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah, it was. Amazing time. But um, yeah, they, they since sold that uh, land and, and, uh, and the campus. And I think it's um, maybe part of the UGA Medical School or something like that now. Makes sense. Yeah. So where was your first uh, your first stop? So I got out of that school after six months, and my first job was on the USS Missouri, the battleship that... Um, it's now had, docked somewhere, right? It's in, Is it in uh, Hawaii? It's in Hawaii in Pearl yeah. Harbor. It's just uh, um, uh, right next to essentially uh, where the Arizona Memorial is. Okay. So you have the beginning and the end of World War II right there. That's pretty wild because that had those are the ones that had the big was it twenty one inch guns or whatever sixteen inch sixteen yeah, yeah. They were just like massive yeah I had yeah. to be uh, something to experience when it fired it was uh, you weren't sleeping through it no you you know everybody would be at, at their general quarter station typically when we were firing the guns yeah so yeah so you were stationed on the ship I was yeah and, and true to to uh, Brian Chandler's words um, you got to do. I did my my day job, my business job on the ship. I was, you know, responsible for managing the all the ship's cash, um, payments to the crews, and and other payments possibly when we pulled in the foreign ports or something like that. But um, we, uh, I also was a gun director officer in Sky One, which was this uh, gun director up in the superstructure, which helped aim the guns. Uh, it also controlled the five inch guns that would be used to shoot down aircraft or missiles. Um, so, uh, you know, I was just um, on that, let's see, let's see, got on there July of 1990 until we decommissioned it in uh, March of 92. We went to Desert Shield and Desert Storm on the ship and participated in the action over there. And uh, it was um, an incredible experience. Great crew, amazing captain. Uh, Lee Case, he lived here in Atlanta for some time before he retired in Coronado, California. Well, so we thank you for your service. I mean, that's uh, especially when you weren't, you know, from the beginning in the military that you decided I'm going to make this this shift and take everything that comes with it. So thanks. But it was truly a privilege and I got 10 times more out of it than I ever thought that I I would have. Yeah. What was surprising to you about the military. I mean, we all sort of have our, our, you know, perceptions, you know, you, you see enough war movies and you've got, you know, sergeants yelling at recruits and, or you're doing, you know, you're, you're force gumping with the toothbrushes on the floor. And, you know, those are pretty extreme, you know, examples. But I mean, as, as somebody who's learning the business side, you know, coming from financial background, you know, what were some things that were surprising to you that um, you experienced? of paperwork was incredible and back then actually um computers had not really been integrated much into how business was done mm-hmm. uh, uh, we did have a, a small computer network on the ship 
there was an internal email system on the ship, but uh, everything was was handwritten. And um, even outside of that, even if there were computers, the amount of administrative paperwork that you do in the Navy, everything gets documented and recorded. And yeah, um, you know, there's a there's something to back up why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I imagine you also got some really good training in, in management. You know, I mean, you're you're given a lot of responsibility, comparatively speaking, especially in that day. Yeah. You know, versus what a twenty-something person would be would be given responsibility for. So how did how did that how did oh, you grow in that? It was a uh, it was amazing the responsibility that they gave you, and I don't think anybody really thought about it at that time. Like, wow, look at all the responsibility I have. It's just um, a job, right? It was just the job. Yep. And, um, Looking back, I think, oh my gosh, that that was amazing at that age to be given that that amount of responsibility. Um, you know, what you were given, particularly as a junior officer, was the responsibility to look after uh, a number of men. Um, I had about eleven folks on my first ship, and around fifty uh, on my my next ship that would be in my division at any one time. And uh, you had the responsibility not just for um, perform running a function on the ship, running a division and, and uh, the output deliverables uh, from that division, but it was the people, these guys relied on you for their career. They had made a decision to leave home, mm-hmm. serve their country, um, you needed to make sure that they were getting all the right training all the best opportunities were created for them to advance, um, to looking after their, um, uh, their morale because they'd be on the ship particularly. We were out at sea. I, I did the math after, um, I did back to back sea tours and I did the math and I was gone about 75, 80% of the time in the 44 months or so that I was at sea. Wow. And um, so if I'm at sea, all my guys were at sea there with me. Mm-hmm. So, Some um, with family, so they're gone. They're away from their families. Yeah. They, and um, you're looking after their quality of life, not just getting the job done between eight and five, but you're looking after a lot of different aspects of the life. And, and uh, that was, um, looking back, that was quite a responsibility. It was very rewarding to me. I was... Uh, I was super lucky. You know, if you go back and talk about my high school years, I told you about all the great teachers I had. I, I got to go to a uh, an exceptional private school in the Philadelphia suburbs that had great teachers and got me a great education. I did nothing to earn that other than to be born into a family that could afford to send me there and encourage me and push me to go to college mm-hmm. and encourage me and push me to stay in college when, you know, maybe I thought about <laughs> not doing college anymore. Yeah. So yeah. these are guys who came from all walks of life around the country, the inner city, country boys, whatever. Yeah. And that's what they were born into. So, um, yeah. Well, I mean, it says a lot about you that you took that responsibility seriously and that you thought more about... Jesus, look at all the papers I got to do this week. This is crazy versus, hey, you know what? The rest of these guys are missing their family. They didn't sign up for some of the stuff they're given, but we're all in this together. Let's make the best of it and let's you know, recognize the sacrifices we're doing. Yeah, and I'm still friends with a lot of those guys today. Um, you know, officer and enlisted weren't uh, supposed to fraternize and, and we didn't, but you develop relationships and you develop respect for each other. Yeah. Um, uh, you almost become like family, I would imagine, you, right? You, Where you're around each other so much, and you're going through a lot. To a degree, um, you, you you have a, a chain of command and order and discipline that, that needs to be maintained, but you also develop um, levels of respect and, and within that that um, doesn't require you to exercise, you know, authority and, and lead by rank rather than just you know lead by example and everybody's doing what we need to do to get the job done yeah so let me ask you this because i know i've talked to other folks that have been in the military and this is always an eye-opener you know you come in so how old were you when you got commissioned i was 25 so that's still fairly young to be managing you know the amounts of people that you did and you probably had you know petty officers or other enlisted folks that were probably twice your age. 
right? Um, Did you have some of that? Because I know that's a tough dynamic to come in and have to manage people that have been doing their job for 20 years, and here you are brand new having to learn it yeah. as well as manage it. Did you run into that? Yeah, my, my leading petty officer or leading chief on the uh, those guys on both of the ships I was on uh, were all older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, some, you know, substantially older than me. So how do you build that trust? How do you build that um, that <laughs> dynamic between an officer and an enlisted? You know, you're responsible for them, but you need them, right? You listen to them. Yeah. Um, they, uh, they're the technical experts and they've been running divisions. Uh, they've been running their uh, divisions for, for years and years. They've, they've been doing that job for 10, 15, 20 plus years. So they know what they're doing there. Um, you give them what what they need to be able to do their job, mm-hmm. and um, and you ask for help. Um, and when you, there's a problem, maybe with a junior enlisted uh, guy, you don't go to the junior enlisted guy and try and fix him or fix what he's done wrong. You go to your chief, who will go to the leading petty officer who will go to that young man and say, hey, here's what we got to do better. Yeah. Um, And that was effective. It was. I mean, that's what you were told to do as well, coming out of officer candidate school and then coming out of the logistics school or my colleagues maybe coming out of surface warfare school would all been taught the same. Yeah. So, um, and then sometimes you have to still follow your hunch. If something doesn't seem right, and I had that hunch about, uh, about three or four months into on my first ship, and uh, I had a senior chief who was kind of trying to direct me in one way. And I thought we needed to, to turn over a few more stones on something that something didn't feel right. And, uh, and, uh, I, and we had needed to call in some auditors from the fleet to, to look at some things. I was glad that I did. Uh, had I not, and things would have probably blown up more and I might have lost my job. Mm. So you do have to follow your gut. Um, and, and have the confidence to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that comes with wisdom where you can kind of discern between, I really don't know what, what I need to do here versus these aren't adding up and something seems to a little fishy, right? Yeah. Uh, that's, it's, uh, when you say wisdom, I'm kind of pausing there because there are, there are, and you could ask any enlisted guy, there's not many ensigns. That's the most junior officer on the ship that they would say had much wit in the way of wisdom. I don't think, I can't honestly look you in the face and say, I had a lot of wisdom then, but I did have a gut feel. But I think, too, you were a couple years older than some of the new yeah. commission ensigns right out of, you know, in ROTC, right? That is true. That I might have had that going for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you wind up, um, in the Navy for, you said, seven years? Six yeah, years? Yeah, about six and a half. Okay. Yeah. So as you get towards the tail end of that, you know, you've, you've um, you finished up your time in Missouri. Did you have shore duty that you did or other ships you were on? So, yeah, we did. Uh, I did a, a roughly two years on the Missouri, and then um, I had the chance to go to shore duty. Uh, but, you know, like I quit my job in investment management to go off to sea, and, and, and I wasn't ready to go back to a desk in an office somewhere. So I asked for another sea tour. Um, there was a job open on the ship one pier over on the USS Antietam. And uh, a detailer, he's kind of like your, your personnel officer that says, you know, here's where the jobs are open, where you can go next. And so he signed me up to that one. I thought it was a done deal. And I was going to Antietam next. I didn't have to move down to San Diego. I was in Long Beach, California at the time. And and uh, he called me back a few days later and said, oh, I'm sorry, that, that ship's uh, commanded by um, Captain Natter. And uh, you actually have to interview with Captain Natter. He decides who's going to be an officer in his wardroom. Yeah. And um, I was like, oh, okay, I, I didn't know who Captain Natter was, but sure, I'll, I'll go do that. And uh, I, a few days later, I go over to the next pier and um, I'm showing up to his cabin and sit down across from this guy who's and his navy whites and he's got this huge chest full of medals like I'd never seen before and I didn't know at the time but he was the the most highly decorated surface warfare officer in the navy and he was a uh, a Vietnam war hero and um quite a quite a presence um and he asked me some tough questions and the the one question that always has stuck with me is that uh 
he said, you know, do you think that you're a smart guy? And I said, yeah, I think I'm a smart guy. So do you think you're smarter than most of your enlisted guys? And I said, I'm not quite sure about that. Um, he said, well, why not? I said, well, I've had more education than most of them, I'm sure, if not all of them. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know that I'm, I'm smarter than, you know, that, you know necessarily than, than any of them. Um, and he said, well, that's good. You're going to find that, you know, you're enlisted guys. So he just was testing me there. Yeah. Um, and I just kind of caught me off guard with that question. But he was a smart guy. He, um, he went on to become a four-star admiral. Uh, he was a commander in chief of the Atlantic fleet eventually and uh, had a, a fantastic career. Um, he came back to see the officers on the, uh, on the Antietam about a, maybe six, 12 months or so after he had left the ship and he had gotten promoted to rear admiral at the time. And you could tell he loved being at sea. And so he was back visiting us and he gave the, uh, junior officers a little, um, uh, chat and um one of the things that uh stuck in my mind it's kind of career advice goes he said guys if you know do this job uh for as not necessarily for as long as you can but do it for as long as you're having fun if this job stops being fun get out of the navy stop doing it um that's something that stuck with me not just for uh um you know, the Navy, but any job or anything I've been doing. Yes, yeah, it's, it's great advice and it's transferable anywhere, really. Yeah. yeah. So when did the Navy stop being fun? I, it never stopped being fun. So we could talk about regrets. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So what, what did you, what started this thinking to, okay, what's beyond the military? Um, so I did my, I finished up my second tour on the Antietam. I, um, you know, we didn't get to go over to the Persian Gulf and do anything like we did on the, the Missouri, but we had a... And for, I'm not a huge um, Navy expert on the ship. So this, coming from the Missouri, which is a, a surface battleship. battleship, right? Yeah. What's the Antietam? Antietam what? is a surface ship as well as a missile cruiser. Okay. So its job was to provide, typically to provide um, surface to air uh, anti-aircraft uh, coverage for a carrier battle group. So you would protect the aircraft carrier from being shot up by enemy aircraft or missiles. Okay, so a, also part of a fleet if you're traveling yeah. through open waters, but that's right. slightly a different responsibility group, or um, different purpose than the Missouri. Typically to, to shoot down uh, you know, enemy aircraft with, okay. uh, and carry about 122 standard missiles on it, maybe okay. Tomahawks. But, um, but another warship, uh, the, the battleships were all phased out. The Missouri was the last battleship that was decommissioned when it was decommissioned. So I, you know, going back to your question, when did it stop being fun? It absolutely never did. So if anybody ever asked me, well, do you have any regrets? The one regret I have, um, and I have lots of things that maybe I should regret, but I, I don't, uh, but it was getting out of the Navy. I was having fun doing that. I love the people I worked with. The camaraderie is the best job I ever had, but I thought, you know, I'd, I'd gotten married towards the end of my sea tour on my second ship. Uh, it was I was definitely, you know, overdue for getting on a shore tour mm-hmm. where you kind of, uh, you get to go home every night. You're not at sea 75, 80% of the time. Yeah. And uh, and I was really looking forward to that, that shore tour. So I did the shore tour and I thought, you know, it's... I've, I've got this wife now and, you know, to where to start a family and uh, to be a good husband, I should be around all the time. I saw the stress that that Navy life, particularly uh, sea duty, put on on families. Mm-hmm. And I thought that would be uh, just be the right thing to do. Um, maybe not the most fun thing to do, but the right thing to do would go pursue uh, a career outside the Navy. Yeah, well, that makes sense. You know, and you... You know, you do have trade-offs and you make sacrifices, you know, not only for the actual military individual, but for, like you said, the family and the spouse as yeah. well. So totally yeah. understand that. So where were you living when you did the shore duty? West Palm Beach. Okay. Was that your final stop in the military? That was my final stop, yeah. Okay. So how do you how do you take all of your experiences from the Navy and then go back into the private sector? How does that, how does that recruiting or... 
interviewing process or job searching? What does that look like back in the early 90s? Yeah, I came across... Because um, I know how we got to work together, but I'm curious to exactly. hear... Exactly. So I'll yeah. tell you about that yep. period between uh, how I ended up there together with you. But um, there was a recruiting firm. Um, I needed some guidance at, at that point to really articulate everything that I'd done in the previous six years or so to, to you know, provide a, a picture of why I'd be valuable to uh, a company um, guy coming out of the military. So uh, there was a recruiting firm called like Bradley Morris or something like that. I think they're still here in Atlanta, actually. And they they would sit you down. They probably sat a a hundred plus of us down in this hotel ballroom and and took us through this workshop of like uh, inventorying everything that you'd done and the skills that you had and converting them into, you know, civilian speak and why those uh, would be valuable, not just from the leadership perspective, but, uh, uh, you know, many other just, you know, job function wise and converting that and then uh, prepping you to do interviews. And um, and then they did that for about uh, two days with us. I think that was a Saturday and Sunday of intensive preparation. And then the reward was Monday, Tuesday or something like that you went and got to interview with uh, four or five different companies that they um, set you up with. And I think I had like GE, Schneider Trucking and Sprint were, were in there, mm-hmm. I believe. And, um, and I, I went through that process with uh, the second interview process with Sprint mm-hmm. and GE. This is February. And um, I had a I had a good interview with Sprint, and a couple days later I got flown up to Cleveland, Ohio, in February for my interview with GE Lighting. And um, GE, of course, is a great company. Uh, it was the middle of winter though in Cleveland. It's a tough sell. It was about yeah. a foot of snow on the ground. I remember taking off from Cleveland to go back to uh, Florida and looking at Lake Erie frozen over and a snow-covered city and saying a little prayer that I would get the sprint job. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that happened. Yeah, because that's where we met. And I know that when you mentioned that recruiter, that was that sounded familiar. I know that they focused a lot on bringing, you know, retiring military personnel, you know, back into the private sector. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't ever remember a bad hire that came out of the military. So, I mean, I was always impressed with, you know, you could look at the military as a training ground, but it's obviously its own career. But I think the things you learn in the military and the responsibility you have, like we talked earlier, you know, carry yourself probably farther than what you would normally see, you know, in your 20s. Because um, I know that just what you described, you know, my first job was at Delta and I didn't have near the responsibility with, you know, a college degree coming out. It was sort of like, sit down, be quiet, shut your mouth for about five years, and then we'll ask you questions and get your feedback then. Whereas, you know, you're from day one, you're like, sir, we have a problem with this, sir, what do we do now? You know, and you're like, it's decision time, right? So I think you guys were well suited coming into, we were doing special pricing for telecom. And uh, I just remember you and and some of your other military counterparts just coming in, just lighting it up. So. So this became the start of your pricing career, right? That was the start of my pricing career there at Sprint. Again, it was another great transition. You know, I thought about going from college to the Vanguard group and the culture uh, there at Vanguard. And not, not just the fact, of course, that there were a bunch of young people, but a great culture learning things. And then you know, going from the Navy to mm-hmm. a telecommunications company was an, an odd transition, but the culture of the people there... Um, yeah, it, not just the fact that there was a bunch of other military, ex-military folks that were there, but everybody mm-hmm. there was, the, the camaraderie was exceptional. Everybody was there to help each other out, weren't they? Yes. Um, that's, that's, a special, that's a special dynamic that yeah. I still, we still stay in touch with, you know, a, a dozen of those. of those people that we worked yeah. with, right? Exactly. Yeah. I one of them was a customer of mine just not but a, a year or two ago. Yeah. Lives in a down in Texas now, but um, you know, I'm still uh, yeah. still all a very s- small, tight community, and I think that's just because of the culture there and the fact that we were 
a group of people that like to help each other out. Yeah, just for not sure. focused on ourselves. Yeah, I think so. And um, you know, we were a lot of them. You know, either single or they they didn't have kids, so you had kind of your nights free. Yeah, you were somewhat rested. <laughs> yeah, you were the first one to take the plunge into kids. Yes, that was. Uh, yeah, that was time flies, huh? Ninety six. Yeah, because we had the with the Olympics in Atlanta that were kicking up, and uh, yeah, there was there was a lot happening that year. So, well, yeah. So we, um, I was only at Sprint for like a year and a half. I think you were there maybe a little bit longer. I was there less than a year, about eleven and a half months. Is that it? Okay. Yeah. I um, I got a call from a kind of a startup, even though they were publicly traded like as a penny stock. It was very much a startup. Um, from a guy at a they were, they were called Charter Communications International back then, uh, not the cable company Charter. And uh, I did a couple of interviews, and uh, I think a couple on, and I got offered a job to do pricing for this startup that had some international operations, some uh, facilities in Panama and Venezuela, and they were thinking of putting some other facilities in other Central American countries. And that just seemed cool to me, something new and different. Mm -hmm. um, so I, uh, I went in to tell my boss that uh, uh, I was leaving and I was feeling really bad about it because I'd been there less than a year, and here I was, I was leaving. But I, this thing came out of nowhere, and mm -hmm. how could I say no to that? It was a little bit more money, but it was a really cool opportunity. And uh, he said, "Yeah, I know. I recommended you for the job." <laughs> he goes, "Don't tell anybody, but I'm leaving next month to do something else, also." So, so let me let me ask you this because obviously, you know, your, your first couple companies were large. The military is one of the largest, right? Sprint was not a small company. So now going into a startup or something that was certainly smaller in nature, um, was there something compelling? Did you have some entrepreneurial, um, you know, oats to sow, if you will? Were there, just tell me about that process. Uh, I think probably back then, if you look at it, that was early 97. And the stock market was starting to get a little bit nutty with things that were going on and um, options and share grants and startups and high tech was just starting to take off then. I, I ended up choosing Sprint, um, not just because it was in Georgia and not Cleveland, Ohio, by the way, but they had just passed the Telecommunications Act of 96 and I mm -hmm. thought that would be a good industry to go into. It was being deregulated. There would be a lot of growth and opportunity going forward. Mm -hmm. um, and with uh, with the fact that this was a startup doing some, not just telecommunications, it was satellite communications. It was international. Um, they had a phone card business, which seemed kind of... Uh, interesting and, and different they had an internet business and they were going to provide internet services uh, they were providing it not only in texas but in panama they're going to do it in venezuela costa rica nicaragua so um that all kind of seemed cool and entrepreneurial figure out how to do that and i was going to get a lot of you know side by side hands-on exposure with the guys doing the engineering and the um the computer programming and things that needed to go into to making these services work so um you know there was a there was a combination i think of the fact that there was some interesting things going on with startups that would explode into these huge things and all this exposure to other new technology new ways of doing business the international i think the international piece mostly was what was that was compelling to you yeah because as you, because as, I remember you went through a couple of different telecom companies, and most of them had a big international footprint, right? Well, that was my first. That step was your first step that. into it. So I was there for uh, for a couple of years, um, and I got exposed to a lot of different things. I got. I wasn't just doing pricing. Was probably um, what I spent maybe the least amount of my time doing. There was a lot of. Uh, time working with the engineers, just learning about the products. And then I, I did some product management. Not that that was my job, helping design a, uh, a service that would take inbound 800 
number of phone calls and uh, terminate at a call center in Costa Rica. Um, so with the over our satellite communications over our inbound uh, 800 numbers using a switch in Atlanta. And mm-hmm. So I learned a lot about the technology to help put together that program with, of course, the help of the engineers and and um, all that was going pretty well. But then uh, I could see that in the long run that that company was not going to make it. Um, so I... Uh, started looking at that point and in a few months I found an opportunity with a company called Equant which was in international telecommunications so uh, while you know it, it didn't pan out from from the perspective that I hope it would at the at the startup I did learn a lot it was um, it was very useful uh, for me when I went into interview for that role um, literally right around the corner from where I was working at a at Equan, um, I had some international experience to speak to, mm-hmm. and um, and they were a global company, so not just a little bit of uh, Latin America, but they were all over the world. They had points of presence in over two hundred uh, countries and territories where they did business, mm. and I got the job. I I took it. So not only did I now have an opportunity to work for somebody very global. But, and I didn't realize this at the time, um, but the guy I ended up working for was an extremely generous guy when it came to, to uh, him imparting knowledge and sharing what he had and spending time developing me as a, as a real pricing professional. Um, kind of a mentor type of a he role? Was, he was very much of a, a mentor, not just my boss, but a mentor. And we'd go yeah. into his office and... Um, close the door and had a big whiteboard and we'd spend you know just about every afternoon an hour or two sometimes several hours and show me how stuff you know working through problems teaching Mm me um, helping me out on the deals I was working on or the product pricing aspect that I was working on Um, really a great guy still here in Marietta Richard York okay brilliant guy yeah I think that's really important because a mentor can really give you that insight to sort of, you know, either jumpstart jump your career or to just have it soar from there. You get insight, um, you can bounce ideas off, you can learn not only about the industry but also the company and just, you know, being professional. Here's, you know, what you need to do. I had one of those at Delta that got me into the, the telecom business to start with and it was... It's a game changer because you don't know without that presence, would you have done as well as you have or would you have gone down that same path? You know, I just think it's really it's really good to seek out a mentor, whether you're in high school, college or you're at any point in your career. Yeah, that that I wasn't I was lucky because I wasn't seeking that person out. That was just in his nature. I, I wasn't even asking for it. And I could not agree anymore with you about be, you know, if, if if you don't have somebody in your where you're working that's offering that up, uh, and you're t- and you're, you don't have that, you've got to seek it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a two way street too. So yeah. if you're a mentee, um, you need to give something back from that relationship. Where you might be involved in a, in a nonprofit organization or something like that, but bring something to the table as well. Uh, I. I had the opportunity myself to be in a formal, you know, mentor-mentee relationship four or five times with with mentees, and I would tell them that that's you know what I, I want to learn from you. You're doing this job, uh, you're in a sales role or whatever. I'm I'm in pricing, so tell me, come in and teach me something about sales. Mm-hmm. Or, um, but uh, and I always, I always was uh, lucky to have that. I had great mentees as well. Yeah, and it is a two-way street. You know, yeah. I know the the folks that I've helped mentor. You know, I learn from them. Usually, if there's a if there's a generation gap, you know, you understand a little bit about the thought process of what a younger person is, or even if it's somebody new to the company, even if they're similar with experience, you kind of see a little bit about their challenges coming in and how can you fix it and you know um, remove some of that friction and that ramp up time. Yeah. yeah. So a couple, couple of pricing uh, jobs. You obviously had a, a pretty good career. Um, how, t- 
what are some of the best practices that you've learned over that? Because I know we could talk for three hours about um, your career. You've done a lot with it, but I, I do want to get to what you're doing now. Sure. Um, I don't want to run too long on this, but uh, just some of the things you've learned. International, you know, that was that was a big component of what you know. I think you were successful with. Yeah, international. Um, I'm lucky now after twenty plus years in the international telecommunications uh, space. Um, I you know, worked for Equant, which turned into Orange Business Services, uh, a company called CETA, and then um, Vodafone. Um, and it's, it's taken me uh, to all corners of the earth. I've been around the world. I've got friends out of those 20 plus years of experience now in, in all corners of the earth too. Um, but I've learned a lot about other other countries and their uh, not just their business practices, but you know how you do business, the the culture of doing business in those countries. Um, you know, one of the things is though, at the end of the day, we're all the same, regardless of the language, skin tone, or religious base of that that country. Everybody just kind of wants the same thing in life. Uh, that that is that is I think the gem of working internationally or traveling internationally is that you experience that and you realize we are more alike. You had quite a bit of experience there too, and you're and I honestly I didn't grow up traveling and I didn't speak a foreign language and I had no I mean they don't have ESPN in Europe or Asia so I had no interest in that right I mean my sports is here and I live for that yeah. and. But, you know, once I got the opportunity to work for the Olympics, same thing. You sit down with somebody, you know, you're sharing, you know, um, some traditional Japanese meal and you're trying to not look like a fool with chopsticks and you start talking about family. And the one, I just remember the one guy I was talking to had like a 15-year-old son. And I said, so, so what's a teenager like in Japan? And he said, oh, they're a pain in the ass. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, and that, that just struck me. He was being funny. Yeah. But I appreciated his humor. I mean, I didn't have, you know, teenagers at that point. But I can remember being a teenager. You know, and you, you rebel and you're trying to find your own way. And that just struck me because, I mean, he was obviously a different culture, different race, different language, different religion. But yet underneath all of it, it's a parent and a child trying to connect and trying to get them, you know, to kind of go down the path and, yeah. and find your way. And that was remarkable for me. And I think that was that was something that still I still remember that, you know, 20 years later. That's I, I, I remember having a similar experience. I was in Germany for the the first time with Vodafone anyway, about five years ago. And um, I was meeting this guy who was uh, an important colleague of mine for the first time face to face. He was German. I was American. And uh, we had this one to one meeting and we're kind of stumbling through the formalities and talking about our functions and challenges, business stuff. And and kind of said, do you have kids? And he had a young teenage daughter. I had a young teenage daughter then. And I said, well, how's that going right now at this point in time? And you've had young teenage daughters too. And, yeah. yeah. And he just, just his head went into his hands and shook his head. He was having some challenges. And, and we bonded over that immediately. And, you know, it's like, well, you know, they, dads are, it's the same challenge parenting in Germany as it is in the U.S. And it's rewarding to. Yeah. To make a connection with somebody like that uh, across thousands of miles. And certainly the business language is the same too, you know. Uh, companies have to make sure their employees are taken care of and that they're motivated and that the companies. That's you know. a, another great thing about that, the global perspective is that um, you, get, you do have some different ways of thinking though. Um, different backgrounds of people, different culture. And when you leverage that across all of the borders, you know, how to best take care of your people. Everybody wants to take care of their people or advance their careers, uh, uh, get the most out of your talent. Um, but when you can get the perspective of maybe seven, eight, 15 different countries pulling, pulling from all of that, mm -hmm. you come up with truly some great ideas. We'll have to do a follow-up podcast on uh, just like business culture because I'm, I'm fascinated to hear how you know, what works in the United States, you know, in terms of how your company culture is in general versus UK or Germany or um, Singapore or other countries that you've worked with. Because um, I think that's that's a fascinating um, study in how human nature works and how business operates. 
but I do want to give you an opportunity. So tell me a little bit about, you know, since you've since you've left, um, uh, who's your last company? Vodafone. Vodafone. Sorry. Um, since you left there, you know, tell me about what you're doing now. I'm with a company called Soft One. It's a leadership and organizational development uh, company. Uh, it's uh, working on that with uh, with a few other partners, including a, a good friend of mine from my time in the Navy early on at, at Officer Candidate School. We went through training together, uh, Dr. Pete Berardi. Um, he went into the SEALs, uh, did 23 years uh, and uh, in that. And then got his PhD in leadership and public policy. And he's just that guy's had this passion for leadership stuff for a long time. And he and I got reconnected about five years ago. And I would help him out a little bit, you know, in the background over the years, um, looking at the the product work that he uh, was pulling together, the course curriculum, go-to-market strategies and things like that. And um, we started working together uh, on this stuff in uh, the springtime around April or so um, and wanted to uh, take it in a different direction and, and get into some bigger companies. Uh, there's, He's got 23 years in the SEALs and all the knowledge accumulated in that plus his, uh, all of the uh, knowledge he accumulated going through his studies to achieve his PhD. Um, I did my time in the Navy and, and 20 plus years in industry following that, mostly in leadership positions. Mm-hmm. And um, we've got a couple other folks, uh, a retired CEO um, from the retail sector and uh, another uh, uh, college professor. She's a, an MBA professor, actually, uh, as part of the team. So we come from a diverse group of backgrounds um, and leveraging that perspective from from business, from academia, uh, the military, uh, to come up with um, some pretty unique performance programs, leadership performance programs, and uh, and it's really enriching. It's great to be able to pass on this knowledge that we've accumulated over the years. It was um, it was something that we were sitting on a Zoom call this morning with each other, drinking coffee and catching up on what we needed to get done this week and some of the projects we have going on. And, um, but we're just thinking also more, we're just kind of chatting about where, you know, where we do, you know, are, are we doing what we enjoy doing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the answer was, you know, definitely yes. Yeah. Um, and it's at this point in our career and our, at the age we are, um, to be able to pass that on is very, very rewarding. And um, to have, you know, to work with people and to uh, to see things and experience things before that people are going through now and say, well, you know, help people fix things, help people look at things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the other side of that is helping them because we're, we're working with leadership within organizations help their people because they're going to it becomes a multiplier effect they're going to go back and not just be better themselves but they're going to help make their everybody in their organization better yeah well i mean that's that's great we were just talking earlier about you know the mentoring aspect and giving back and how you know rewarding that is and to have an actual business that's kind of wrapped around that core and providing that experience, those best practices, I mean, it kind of ties into what things come naturally, naturally for you. So, yeah, yeah, so that's great. Yeah, there's some things that I, you know, might have taken me a year or two to figure out how to really get right and humming. Mm-hmm. And there's a client that we're working with now that's brought this this problem to to us, the same problem, and you know it's something we'll be able to cut that time down for them and yeah into to, to weeks maybe months at the most um rather than you know a year or two to to trial and error it that's fantastic so yeah well um i know we're getting short on time but i wanted to at least circle back and just kind of just get a sense of if you had to go back in time what uh what are some things that you'd offer your younger self advice or um thoughts or encouragement yeah, I would say um, it took me a while to, to figure this out, maybe not to my 40s or 50s, but, you know, um, your decision-making process, my decision-making process, I would say 
uh, ask why. Try to understand why you're thinking in a certain way. Why? What has led you to that last decision? Why did it work out and not or not work out for you? What did you get out of that? But you know, peeling back the onion on that, it comes back to not just why, but you know, what is your what was your purpose in that? What was your purpose for doing that? What was your purpose uh, in that role to the organization? Your purpose to other people? Mm-hmm. Um, but really peeling back the onion and, and taking more time to be introspective from that perspective, rather than just taking the leap and and uh, um, just making those snap decisions. Yeah, just almost like your decision needs to be a little more intentional with the understanding why. Uh, instead of just oh this what, looks like fun make, yeah what's making me tick yeah what 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 why did that work out um, I you know the the jobs that where I followed ended up having a that right feel gut feeling because I understood why were uh, um, they were good good job decisions uh, career choices that I'd make if I'm the the ones that ended up uh, being the least fulfilling and maybe the most miserable uh, were the ones where I just followed the money. Didn't think too much about it. It was a bigger paycheck. Why not go and do this? Um, didn't get a lot out of it. The ones where I followed my my heart and really understood uh, what I was doing there, um, those were the jobs where I learned the most. I might have been the most challenged, might mm-hmm. have been the most difficult, um, but uh, you know, it would typically mean that the the people I was with were were the best people for me to be with, working with at that time or working for. Yeah. And what I would end up learning from that that experience was uh, was most rewarding as well. That's that's really good advice too, because I think that there's a generational. Um, dynamic going on with this. I know that for our generation, I know for me personally, whatever job came up, if it paid more, you take it. You know, it doesn't matter if you got to relocate or what the job is. Hey, if it's going to make 30% more, that's what you should do. That's the right decision. You know, that's what I can hear my, you know, like my parents or some of my peers talking about that. But what I've seen with my kids who are now in their mid 20s, early mid 20s, they're not following the money. They're looking at it and going, you know, why would I take a job that's going to have me move to a different part of the country? I want to be here. You know, I like this. I don't feel like I'm missing anything. You know, I still travel and learn other things. And so um, I think that's really important advice uh, for young people to really think about. Because I think there's nothing wrong with following the money if it's also giving you other things. Because once you get the money, you still got to go to work, you know, and you still have to do all the other things that you have to get out of bed and and do and so I think having that you know opportunity to learn and enjoy things or, or the culture fit or whatever is really important I 100% agree yeah. I, uh, I wouldn't say that I didn't do that all the time but I, there the handful of times that I, I you were in the military you didn't chase the money I know that no, certainly that was uh, <laughs> that was the opposite of chasing the money I got out to chase the money though and um, I was uh, maybe I wish I'd stayed in to, to do that 20 plus years because mm-hmm. of the camaraderie and uh, that, you know, sense of purpose within the, within the community. But uh, nonetheless, I got lucky and ended up with some good organizations uh, with Sprint and working with you, of course, was one of them. And and uh, just about every other place that I've uh, I've ended up, I've I've found uh, very good people. That would be, and that would be the other uh, word of advice I would give is really um, uh, look for uh, the quality of people uh, that you're going to work for and work with. Mm-hmm. What is uh, you know what is what is their ambition? What is their focus? What are their values? Make sure that you have uh, a similar set of values with the people whom you're going to work with and work for. Um, because that, if your values don't interlock, um, it's going to be a challenging experience for you. Yeah, that, it's, that's so true. And we both experience both sides of that. So I think in this day, too, you have more tools at your disposal to figure out what does that culture look like. And you can reach out to people through LinkedIn or 
Glassdoor or other places. Yeah, and, it's and amazing it. what's out there now. Yeah, yeah. We didn't before, have that back then. No, it's like, oh, a friend of mine has got a cousin who works for that company. He loves it. Okay, it must be great. And then that's it. That's your. Yeah. That's all your intel you get. You know. So, well, Steve, thanks for your time. It's been great, to kind of catch up with you. I've learned some things even after twenty four years that I didn't know before. But uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for imparting some great wisdom for the listeners. And uh, we'll do a part two down the road. And fly eagle fly right yeah thanks paul appreciate it i really appreciate this opportunity yeah thanks steve take care this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com Thank <laughs>